two, three. Bem-vindo the World Game Podcast! Uh, welcome to the uh, World Game Podcast from Russia 2018, and that's already episode 18. Uh, before we start, let me remind you that you can uh, download, stream, or subscribe to this podcast from our website, sbs.com.au slash The World Game. And today, uh, we have the pleasure to have Seb Hasset back in the podcast. Hey, Seb. Great to be back, Christoph. And what a day of football. Again, we had uh, two matches, uh, but they were... Um, Pretty impressive, both with different angle. And let's start with Brazil against Mexico. So much hype for that match. Did that match deliver? Yeah, well, I mean, it was an interesting game because I think uh, a lot of people here were expecting a lot of Mexico. Uh, we already know how, how good Brazil are, uh, and we expect that every World Cup, don't we, that they're going to be a team that's going to be ultimately there at the pointy end. And I think uh, in 2018, that's no different. But there was also a lot of hype about Mexico. For the first time, I think a lot of people expected them uh, to possibly push on towards a quarterfinal, maybe even a semi-final because of the maturity in the team, the quality that they have. Uh, unfortunately for them, they did come up against a super team at the peak of their powers. Um, and Brazil looked to flex their muscle today. And ultimately, uh, when they focused on the job at hand, they just had too much quality and class of Mexico. And as much as Mexico tried especially during the first half, they tried to piece together some opportunities. Um, when Brazil found the higher gears, when they started to really show themselves and what their qualities are and what they're capable of, Mexico couldn't quite go with them. That, that was my impression. A little bit unlucky for Mexico to be drawn against the team that I consider to be the best in the tournament. And it's unfortunate to see them go out yet again in the round of 16. It's an incredible record. I think it's is it seven straight tournaments now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, quite extraordinary. And, and a little bit disappointing for them. What about Neymar? Did, uh, did, he, did he play well? Did he carry that team? I saw a lot of comments on Twitter and social media that there was a vibe around that team of the 1970s Brazil. Would you agree? 1970s Brazil was the... I think, you were way too young, yeah, I don't even bother. <laughs> you know, that's the team that introduced us all, I think, to Samba football in its most purest form. Um, I think for many people, uh, the first time they probably saw football in colour was the 1970 World Cup final. And although that, that style of football, it can't exist today because you need to have a defensive side to your game. Um, we'd all love it. We'd all love to see that style of football, but it's just not possible in 2018. This Brazilian side's got sort of elements of that. The genetics, the DNA of the way they play today can be traced back to that with a slightly more pragmatic flair and feel. And, and, and you've got to remember, the majority of that team, if not pretty much all of them, played in Brazil at that time, back in, in the 1970s and even into the 1980s, whereas now they pretty much all of them play in Europe under European coaches, tactically disciplined, tactically drilled. So they, they're, they're more used to that as well. But I, I like the blend that's currently in the Brazilian side. They just seem to be able to, they, they, they seem to understand their roles whilst having that sort of freedom and creativity that we all love that makes us all... Deep down in our hearts, Brazil fans, I think, uh, because they represent the, the purest elements of the game. Um, uh, are they totally playing that way this time? Not quite, but that's still enough, I think, to make us all enjoy it. And they're still getting in behind. That's how both of their goals were scored today. And Neymar, in particular, obviously scored the first goal. He set up the second. Was he trying to shoot or was he trying to cross? 
I'll leave that for others to decide. I think he was trying to shoot. I think he was looking for a double, to be honest. But the fact that he's just so mobile, he's combining so well with those around him. You know, Coutinho's got such wonderful movement. Jesus is a player that um, has developed so much in the past 18 months. Uh, such a hype junior career back in Brazil, but he's stepped up in the Premier League magnificently. And now he's just a, a wonderful player for Brazil. And that front third, uh, Christoph, you might correct me, but I think it's as good as France's front third. I think it might even be the, the, the best at the tournament. And that's why they're still my pick to go on and win it. Yeah, uh, I, sadly, I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of the, the star that Neymar is uh, and, and will become even more of a star in, in the years to come, is this a defining moment, you think, for someone like him? A moment that Messi didn't have uh, and will never have, probably. Uh, someone like Neymar will probably shine even brighter out of this World Cup after the debacle of 2014. Which was such a great shame too. I mean, anyone who was in Brazil four years ago will tell you that the pressure on Neymar as an individual in that tournament was unlike anything I think any player has ever experienced probably in World Cup history, uh, to be honest, to be the such a focal point for the host nation. Um, when, I mean, there's always such expectation on Brazil, but I think the whole nation in four years ago knew it wasn't a great team, but we've got one world-cast player. And he played quite well in that tournament up until he got his back injury and, and then couldn't play. And, of course, the pressure of uh, trying to play without him, I think, you know, crippled them in the end. Um, he comes into this tournament a different player, Um, obviously that little bit older he's got that, that World Cup experience under his belt and he's got more support this time and he's got, he's got more players prepared I think to do the work around him and critically in midfield I think they've solved the problems that they had four years ago primarily because of the defensive duo of Casemiro and Paulinho who are top quality players play for you know, two of the biggest clubs in the world in, in Barcelona and Real Madrid they're providing that protection They've got their defensive line worked out. That's allowing that actual freedom that I think Neymar's starting to express in this tournament. Um, yeah, look, he'll, he'll face tougher defences as the tournament goes on. That's just, that's just natural, and that's a challenge for them to solve those problems. But is this the defining moment of, uh, of him, his career, and his legacy? It could be. It's certainly the team around him, and critically as well. What people may not be thinking of they're thinking of four years ago but what about two years ago in the olympics he's had that winning moment and so there is that that potentially that 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 feeling that you need to have that yes we can win um that might be circulating through him and some of his teammates who are part of that olympic games winning team yeah he certainly knows how to win now Absolutely. And of course, he's with PSG as well. So they're winning everything. everything. So, um, yeah, that's a, that's a, that is something that you can't underestimate. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so he gets away with a stupid haircut. Uh, a few things, yeah. <laughs> Talking of stupid haircut, Belgium. Uh, now we have to move on to, uh, to Belgium against Japan. Uh, again, what a match because uh, a stupid haircut, I refer to uh, Fellaini, of course. Okay. Uh, and, but... What a match because Japan went in front and then scored twice Japan and then the, 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 the Belgian Lion had to wake up and he did. Christoph, I'm, I'm still struggling. Uh, we're, we're doing this podcast immediately after the final whistle. I'm still struggling to process exactly how that game unfolded. Uh, all Australian football fans will be the first to tell you that uh, the most dangerous scoreline in, in the game is 2-0. And that's exactly what it proved to be for Japan, who in the first half were just holding on um, and trying to stifle Belgium. But Belgium were, were still clearly, I think, the better team during the first 45 minutes. So that was obvious to anyone who watched the game. 
But um, as we're seeing teams do at this World Cup, defending super deep and then trying to get something on the counter-attack. And they did that a couple of times in the first half, which made you think, okay, this it's clearly their, well, it's their strategy to sit back. They do have something to offer in the front third if they can get it up there. And as they emerged from the tunnel in the second half, well, that was clearly the mission to actually get on the front foot and actually get something out of the game and potentially catch Belgium on the back foot, which they which they managed to do. Um, fabulous first goal. Um, I think it was uh, it was Haraguchi, wasn't it, who, who scored then. And then, I mean, that, that obviously put the shockwaves through Belgium, who, who were at sixes and sevens after that. And then they got caught with that absolutely wonder goal from Inouye, who has been one of the players of the tournament not just Japan's best player but one of the players of the tournament um, an exceptional strike that will be replayed over and over again just for the sheer beauty of it uh, it was wonderful to see and at that moment um, I'd, I'd defy anyone to think that Japan weren't going through and uh, you know we're part of Asia and I'm not gonna lie I uh, you know we all love all the teams in the World Cup we all want to send good play good football but I was so excited about the prospect of seeing an Asian team in the last eight playing as, as well as Japan are, representing the Asian Football Confederation. I thought that would have been just so wonderful. But um, to some extent, maybe they scored those two goals too early because there was still 30 minutes for Belgium to get back in the game. And when you consider the individual star quality that we all know that they've got, it's not that surprising that they scored one. And when they scored one, it, it looked like they were going to score two. Um, and the, an the, aerial threat, I yeah, guess. Yeah, and the pressure from Belgium was very intense. Relentless. They got their first goal. Okay, a bit of fortune about it. No doubt about that. But that belief that started to flow through the squad going, okay, we've had our shock. Yes, we're down, but we have to fight. And they're a good team. They're obviously a good team. They've had players who have been... Um, most of them are from the, from the World Cup four years ago. They went to the Euros as well. Disappointments have surrounded them a little bit. Everyone's mentioned them as dark horses. And I think that they looked at each other and said, we do not want to exit the World Cup like this. Not again. We cannot be the team that habitually disappoints. And that would have been a very dark legacy for this team to shoulder. Um, there's great expectations on the Belgian team um, back at home. And to be the team that collapsed again under pressure, oh, I think they would, have, they would have looked at each other and gone, not again. And as it turned out, they dug themselves out. And that final goal that they scored on the breakaway after Honda's free kick nearly won it for Japan, well, that was just a magnificent piece of transition football. And I, I think that every coach around the world, junior coach, should be showing that vision to his young players of how quickly you can move the ball from one end of the field to the other and what you can do with just a few short passes. We talked a, a bit about it with, uh, with Bash yesterday on, on the way football is changing. Uh, and I'm just opening the discussion to you, actually, because he mentioned the failure of Spain of producing, producing quality football despite doing 1,200 passes. They also did, I, I did a quick look, they did 1,500 in the match before. Uh, do you feel that this era of tiki-taka and all this, that we are seeing a new moment in football like you are you have era and we are at a, at a switch right now yeah without a doubt um and i think we've seen probably the past three world or including this one three world cups 2018 2014 2010 that to me have been defined by pretty clear tactical shifts uh 2010 the the dominance of the 4-2-3-1 which you still see a lot of teams play today um really came into vogue but there was only one team that could break it down and that was spain um, and then that became the sort of orthodoxy for a couple of years 
and Spain was so good at it that they didn't need to adopt the defensive structure. That was that was because of the quality of their, their ball players, and that was just a wonderful era to watch them and Barcelona play in that time. And then the sort of antidote to that came in 2014 when we got the high pressing teams. And, you know, your Chile's uh, had a, you know they had a lot of success with that, and, and a few other teams as well started to step up a little bit more, get in their face a bit more, um, and try to sort of attack from the front. Um, and now we're seeing the sort of, I guess, the next phase, which is players are increasingly fitter. And this is, and this is just my impression. And so, and coaches are increasingly uh, conservative. They don't want to ever be seen to be exposed. And the best way to do that is to create two blocks of four as deep as possible, and then use the sort of athletic prowess of many teams to try and attack on the break as hard and as relentless as you can, if possible. And if you, then if you've got a team, say, like Russia, um, not even necessarily do that, but just try and exhaust teams um, and frustrate them beyond belief by sitting so deep and just stifle, stifle, stifle. And it becomes then a psychological battle as much as a physical one to kind of sort of hold the line. And I'm seeing that a lot. Um, it's not probably the most attractive trait in some ways, um, but for teams that don't have the sort of high enough technical quality, it's sort of giving them a way to be competitive in games. And I guess, look, to be honest, even Australia tried that a little bit during the group stages to be as defensive as possible, uh, but probably weren't quite good enough in a way to pull it off. So yeah, it's a definite trend. Um, I don't know how long it will last. Um, I think I think we'll we'll see we'll see the attacking teams come back into football, but that might be another four years away. And that's the beautiful th- thing about World Cups is they really give you an opportunity to sort of check the, the tactical temperature of world football. Absolutely. Okay, we take a short break, Seb, and then when we come back, we'll have a quick uh, look at what's coming up tonight on SBS. You're listening to the World Game Podcast. Don't go anywhere. Don't miss a moment of the 2018 FIFA World Cup with SBS Radio. Hear the passion with every match in multiple languages. All live and free on SBS Radio and the 2018 FIFA World Cup app. Download now. And it's now uh, time in the uh, World Game Podcast to have a look at the off-side bit of the news or the off-beat news uh, with Ricardo Setien. Ricardo, welcome back into the podcast. Hey, it was offline, it was offside, and now it's off-beat. You see, yeah. Ricardinho is a triple value. <laughs> and I was super cold in St. Petersburg at the time, so uh, thank you. That, that is God punishing you for not having me at the podcast. Anyway, we have to say, first of all, that now the World Cup has started. You agree? I do, uh, for everyone, including France. Who? Allez <laughs> <laughs> les bleus. Oh my God, I must say something. Allez les bleus, the other blue, the blues and white, the Argentinians, they are not so happy and it seems not such a good losers. There is a fantastic information that not one, but two fans in Buenos Aires, just after the game ended, when they were eliminated of this World Cup, that they simply threw from the window their TV sets and one of them was a 4K. Imagine the price of that. They don't care, they just say that we are Argentina, we cannot lose. They were very angry, the coach, they are very angry. And the coach that doesn't want to go, I think, I believe. The coach doesn't want to go. Argentina is on the news today with us at the podcast because it's hot. Sao Paoli was the coach of Chile. He won the Copa America, the top title of South America. He left, Chile could not even qualify for the World Cup, so he's the man. Well, 
They want him out. They desperately say who's going to be the next, but he doesn't want to leave. He failed here. He's hated and he doesn't want to leave. Why? Because there is a fine of 50 million dollars to be paid. Now they hate him even more because he doesn't want to quit. Uh, I've got nothing to add. <laughs> well, no, you have to add that football is an amazing place that anybody can come in and give their opinion. But the fact is that we have a coach that was horrible. When he celebrated the goal of Argentina, he was denied. He was not even hugged by no one of his team. But talking about Argentina, Croatia played. Denmark and the stadium had 52,000 people and in that stadium there were 30,000 Argentinians why because they were so sure they would go to the quarterfinals that they bought tickets in advance and while there were only five six thousand Croatians and maybe six thousand Danish most of the fans in that important match where we saw six penalties getting stopped by goalkeepers the majority was Argentinians and I ask you and all our listeners to consider is the system that ticketings are being sold correct? Denmark and Croatia play and the majority of fans is Argentinian. Come on. Yeah, it's got to be wrong. No. Uh, we have to talk about Brazil. Neymar. It's almost... I want to say that the World Cup now belongs to a new generation. To Mbappé from France, to young boys that are really playing well. And Neymar, who is still young, we want to hope that this is the end of an era that is unbearable anymore to see all the time Messi, Cristiano, Cristiano, Messi. Other people must be best in the world. We want to see also new world champions. Why not? Why not Belgium? Why not? We want to see new world champions. So, well, but we have to focus on Neymar because he's the name now. The name. Nobody else has the name he has. And he feels obliged. Fact is that he took the blonde hair, you know, that he looks like a llama, the animal from Peru. He looked like so many things. He simply unbleached his hair. He's back to normal. He's been smiling a lot. He's been talking calmly. Brazil has found a balance which I like. Normally I criticize, but I must tell you, I like what I see. So Neymar alone has a value of 150 million euros. The value of the whole 23 players of Mexico is 1.45 million. So only Neymar is valuable 5 million US dollars, sorry, 5 million euros more than the whole team. Neymar is in the news. We hope from now on for good news. I want to see a real show of Neymar. Absolutely. Thank you, Ricardo. You're mostly welcome. I wish we all enjoy this exciting, amazing World Cup. And come on, come on, Chris. Russia is in the tournament. I know. It's incredible. It's still in the tournament. Thank you, Ricardo. Uh, welcome back to the uh, World Game Podcast. Uh, Seb, we are going to look at what's going up tonight on SBS. We've got England against uh, Colombia and then we've got Sweden against Switzerland. Sorry. Uh, let's start with England against uh, Colombia. But before we start, uh, let's have a listen to, to this fan. You're probably wearing uh, three lions on, uh, on the heart. It seems that the, the team has got a different feeling about it uh, in this World Cup. Would you rate this, this team a bit differently than the one in the past? Yeah, definitely. I think um, this time there seems to be no, no egos, no little clicks in the team. I think they get on really well together. They seem to be quite... They enjoy playing together. There seems to be a really good atmosphere within the team. And Gareth Southgate seems to have really brought it all together. I think, And that's going to really help in these latter stages of the tournament, I think. When you see the, the draw, and we have been in this program been openly said it's a softer side of the draw, it means England can go deep. Are you allowing yourself to dream already or not? 
No. <laughs> no, a little, maybe a little. I mean, especially Spain getting knocked out as well. And you, it does, it, you, you think to yourself, maybe, just maybe this time. But I think the way the draw is, I think Colombia is tougher than arguably who we're going to play in the quarters of the semi-finals because obviously we're a European team, we're not used to playing South American teams and just their different style of play and different, different everything. But I was saying that to someone last night and they said, they said it's exactly the same for Colombia as well in terms of playing England. They're not used to it. So it should just be a really good game and we've done today. It's, it should be two teams that just want to win. How much are you enjoying this World Cup? Because uh, you know, there was so much hype Negative hype from everywhere in the world before, but I mean, all I see here is smiles. Yeah, it's brilliant. We've had nothing but good experiences. The Russians are so friendly. And in, when we've been to Volgograd and smaller places, they always want to come up to you, speak English, have a conversation with you. And if they can't talk English, they're apologetic about it. And it's like, no, 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 no. It's, but your English is better than my Russian. So it's like, and it, we just have a good laugh. And there's been absolutely no animosity, no trouble, no fighting, nothing. It's been brilliant. And uh, can, I, can I risk myself asking you some, uh, some sort of pronostic for, for the match against Colombia? We've just, we've just been asked by someone else and we said 3-2, 3-2 England. That's a big score. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> lots of goals, lots of goals going in. I think, I think it will have goals. I think the game will have goals. OK, good luck. Thank you very much. So that's an English fan here in, in Russia, here in Moscow. I've interviewed him uh, just a few hours ago. Are you allowing yourself to dream? No, but yes. What do you think England can, can start dreaming or not? Even though they haven't played that much and they haven't gone through that, that, that mental barrier that's been stopping them for quite a while. Oh, Christoph, it's coming home. You're, are you half British? Oh, I, look, it's so hard for English football fans to, to keep a lid on things. And uh, look, certainly when they get going, and there is a... There is a feeling now, when you look at the draw, the way it's opening up, that England's moment, if it's not now, then it never will be. And even if this squad is probably four years ago, probably a full World Cup cycle away from full maturity, um, you wouldn't think that they would, you know, if just look at, looking at the age group, you think they'll probably, yeah, be ready for Qatar more than now. But you don't choose your time, your time chooses you. And England will never get a better opportunity to push forward in a World Cup than, they, than the one they have right now. It's quite extraordinary, the draw that they're in. Um, it's certainly not soft, but by World Cup standards, um, it's certainly a lot easier than that they'll ever get, I'd say, ever again. Yeah, they still have to go through Colombia, though, and Colombia are not minos. No, absolutely right. They're, Colombia are a super team, and uh, they too are. You know, they're they're probably in a different stage of their cycle. They're they're much more ready. They're they're a fine team, um, but they've been a little up and down at this World Cup. Um, we've seen them at their best. You know, we've seen them get beaten by Japan. Um, so I, I'm still not quite sure what we're going to see from Colombia. We know at, at their very best they're a super team. No doubt about that at all. Um, but having seen what we've seen from England probably uh, early in the group stages, probably you can probably take the Belgian game out of it just because of all the changes. Um, but what we saw in the opening 20 minutes of their first game and then the obliteration of Panama suggests that this England team's got a lot going for it. Potentially this is a, 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 obviously a sterner test than those two games. Um, but there's a confidence, there's a feel-good factor, there's the opposite feeling, and we, talk, we talked about this uh, you know, a few days ago, Christoph, there's the opposite feeling among the press and the fans. They're not baying for blood, nor are they death-riding them. They're going, no, we're behind you, we're with you. And that's something that I haven't seen around England for a very long time, and that's, that's very exciting for their fans. I think the players are really riding it as well. Um, and if they, can, if they can navigate Columbia, it's certainly not going to be easy. And um, it's hard to pick a favourite, 
I don't actually even know who the bookies are putting as favourites because in many ways you can make cases for both teams. But if strength of momentum is anything, I, I certainly feel that this is England's time. Uh, and as I say, with the way the draw is opening up, um, they have to believe that this is their moment. What do they need to, uh, to, to beat that Colombian team? And I'm going to ask you the same question from Colombia as well. What would be the key factor, what would be key points to, to, to watch out for our public watching at the match tonight? What, what do they need to look at? They cannot allow them to get too much momentum. They cannot allow them to get on top of the game and get the crowd into it. There's a lot of Colombians here and they are going to make a lot of noise. And if they start to get the rhythm in their play, if they start to see that they can stretch England out and, and pull their formation apart a bit and find those spaces um, and they can feed Falcao and, and um, really start to put England under defensive pressure, then they'll, you, you, you might see that England could crack. So they've, England cannot allow that. And that's going to be the test of them. And then they've got to have the patience to then turn that around and go, all right, maybe Colombia's weakness might be defensively. And can they put pressure on them in the same way that they did um, against Panama, against Tunisia, and use their pace, use their pace on the counter-attack. It's not going to be easy. It's, what do you expect? It's a round of 16 game and, he, and Columbia are a good team. Um, but that's where I think that if they're going to have some joy, that's where they'll find it. But I just think with the opportunity that's opened up, um, it's, it's a, a nation like in England's, you know, they're entitled to dream a little bit. Um, and I, I would like to see them put their, their front, you know, their best foot forward. And even if they do go out tomorrow, do it in the right way. Play in the way that they've been playing. Don't be timid. Yeah, be, be patient when you have to be and have the right tempo and all of that. But play with that, 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 that pace and aggression and, and, and really look to exploit the moments. That's what they've done really well under Southgate. And I think that if they can do that again, then, then they can hold their heads up high. Okay, that's certainly a match uh, worth watching, uh, worth, worth uh, staying up for. Uh, Sweden against uh, Switzerland. For me, this one is so hard to read. Well, I think for a lot of people, they looked at this one in the round of 16 and thought this is uh, probably the weakest game. Um, and that's not surprising because they're not two of the biggest teams here. But they've had their moments. Um, undoubtedly, Sweden's probably the biggest surprise. A, to get out of their group um, would have surprised a lot of people, particularly ahead of Germany. But then again, because of what happened against Germany, when they were beaten by them in that dramatic, heartbreaking loss, um, you would have thought, well, that's the end of them. But the way they then bounced back and demolished Mexico uh, was, was ext quite extraordinary, really. And that suggests to me this team's got great unity, great sense of purpose. Nobody gives them a chance. Uh, nobody would have given them a chance, as I say, to get out of the group. They've landed a potential, uh, a really good draw for them to, to get Switzerland, who I think more people know about them because they've got a couple of you know players playing maybe at a higher level. You know, Jacka, Shakiri, um, Imbolo. They've got they've got players of class. And when I have watched Switzerland play, I have actually been quite impressed with them. Um, Any team that can hold Brazil has got to have something about them. They went 1-0 down against Brazil, didn't drop their heads, stayed in the game, got the equaliser and held out from there, which suggests to me that they're a team of you know, pretty good talent. And then what they did against Serbia in a really fiery affair, um, one of the most intriguing matches of the tournament for me because I think a lot of people would have thought Serbia had the quality to get through, um, got an early lead, but then the way that uh, Switzerland dug deep, got their goals, Shakiri's goals, 
extraordinary stuff there. Um, now they're they're a pretty good team, so I, I, I'm looking forward to it. Is it? Yeah, who's actually going to control the game? Who's going to dictate the tempo? Because there's not an obvious team that's going to, going to do it. You probably think that Switzerland might, um, and Sweden might again try to sort of play that sort of um, clever game. But I'm looking forward to it from a tactical battle. Um, and, of course, one of these teams is going to go through to the final eight. So we all want to know more about those teams. So it'll be interesting to see who really shows himself in that game. Uh, just to conclude this podcast, uh, there's only four former winners that are remaining into the, this World Cup. Uh, that's in itself a statistic that means absolutely nothing. But can we read something into this in terms of the, the changes in, in football or, or this World Cup itself? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. What can we read into it? I think we can read into it that the ideas of football, and you've got me on a broad philosophical point here. If you, I might go on a little bit of a rant. I think that football is becoming very globalised and it's giving the opportunity for a lot of nations to um, get educated about how to play the game. More players than ever before from smaller nations are playing in bigger and better leagues. We're seeing real diversity in the top leagues of the game and, and players from far reaches of the globe are now able to play at the highest levels and then bring you know, those talents back. I, I look at Croatia, for example, and their two best players, Modric and Rakitic. You know, they play for Barcelona and Real Madrid. Um, and we mentioned Barcelona and Real Madrid when we were talking about Brazil. So the ideas of the, the top of the game are being fed across uh, leagues and teams around the world. That influence is now being shared. Um, you know, and we see that even in Australia to, to, to some extent. Um, so I can see that. I attribute that as, as one of the reasons. Um, yeah, maybe there's pressures on those nations and expectations. Each nation is in, in, in a different cycle, but I think there's also just more professionalism coming around the world. And some of these smaller teams are really riding the emotion and they're really riding it well. Um, and that's so exciting for me because I'm, I'm loving seeing the, these underdogs from nations who might have been overlooked um, in, in, a, in a sporting sphere and none better than right here in Russia a nation that's had virtually zero joy in football certainly in my lifetime you know, zero joy in sport because yeah, uh, they've, they've been through some really big turmoil absolutely absolutely and, and you know in my lifetime they've only made the European Championship final in 88 I mean they won it in 1960 that was before I was born um, but I'm looking at that going you know even they've worked out what they can do well. It might, they might only have one thing in their arsenal, which is to defend for their lives and then hit it up to Zabuya and hope for the best. But you know what? They've worked out how to get it done. Now, I'm not saying that's the best way to play football. No one's saying that, but it is saying that they've worked out that they can do well. And if provided you've got something that you can bring to the table and you can stifle a nation as good as Spain, well, you know what? That is something. And if that's all you can hold on to and make your nation proud like they're doing, you know, fair play to them. Yeah, and you probably notice that the streets are a lot quieter behind us. Uh, I think everyone is in bed from Russia because what a party that was last night. I mean, the podcast was very noisy and we, it was hard to sleep, to be perfectly honest. Uh, but actually, and we finish on this point, you touched on a very important point. Yesterday, Russia uh, did uh, an amazing party and uh, the party atmosphere in the streets. But you're right in saying that for once, Russia is enjoying sport, which they probably haven't been allowed to uh, for X, Y reason for such a long time. You know, I wrote a, an article on the, on the World Game website detailing that exact point. You know, this is a country that's had a 
you know, really a mixed his history with sport. Of course, I think when a lot of outsiders think about their sport, they look at it as quite tainted. And they think of drug scandals, you know, from the Soviet era right through to now and to the Winter Olympics and things like that. And um, I just think the ordinary Russian person um, feels probably, you know, just a sense of disappointment and, and not shame. But, you know, they, they would love to have their own big moment in the sun. They would look at something like South Korea in 2002 and go, when will that happen to us? Or when will there be a Greece of 2004? Or when will there be a France of 1998? Or even, you know, in, in Australia, we've been, you know, blessed with a, a couple of nation-defining sporting events, none greater than 2005 uh, when Australia qualified for the World Cup. I think that uh, the people of Russia, have, you know, they've longed for a moment. And last night was the moment that it happened. And to be in Red Square, I mean, we were in the studio in St Basil's, which sort of looks back over Red Square. And actually to see it unfold before our very eyes, it was an incredible moment for me and for everyone who was on the team. I was there with Foz and Lucy, and we were just spellbound to watch it. And then as we spilled out onto the streets after the broadcast had done, uh, this was hours and hours after, because of course there was Croatia, Denmark. After that, people were still partying on the streets and six, seven, eight hours afterwards, it was getting bigger and bigger and more people were coming into the city center. And it was as though it was okay to be Russian. It was okay to be a Russian sports fan. It was okay to wave your flag. It was okay to be proud. It was okay. It, it was okay to high five a foreigner. It was like things that they've been waiting a lifetime to do. They were able to do, and the joy on their faces. It wasn't aggressive like I think some people might have thought. It was just pure relief, emotion, ecstasy, totally unexpected as well. And then to think wow, we're still in this. We've even got another game to go. So the party can go on. And just the excitement of that, um, yeah, they're playing for a spot in a semi-final at a World Cup, their own World Cup, and they are a really good chance to go through. Uh, it is quite extraordinary and just a thrill to be here to, to witness it. Absolutely. Thanks, Seb. It was a pleasure to have you in the podcast. And uh, yeah, thank you for all your insight. Thank you very much. Uh, that was the World Game Podcast. Remember, you can uh, download, stream, or subscribe to this podcast on our website, sbs.com.au slash The World Game. Next podcast will be tomorrow morning. Until then, it's bye for now.